And the other day, I was watching the History Channel, um, which I can't watch as much as I like because um, I live in a democracy. And, uh, and Suzanne has to have, what, what's it called? The Learning Channel. And what's the one that has all the TLC? Oh, that's TLC, the Learning Channel. Okay, I'm not so sharp. The Learning Channel. She has to have that one on to tell us how to dress, how to fix our house, you know, all those things. But I was watching the History Channel. I, I won the Battle of the Remote. The Olympics, too. I, I can't tell you I haven't seen one, any of the Olympics yet. And so uh, I would like to, but I just haven't had time. So. But I was watching a History Channel, and I saw a story um, about a guy. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. I had never heard of him before, and I can't believe I didn't, because when they told his life story, I mean, he's like one of the pillars of the development of, of, of America, a guy named Henry Flagler. Anybody ever hear of Henry Flagler? Okay, you live in Florida, that's why you've heard of him. There's probably like Flagler Boulevard and Flagler whatever. But Henry Flagler, um, you know, a few of you raised your hands and heard of him. Um, He was a friend of J.D. Rockefeller. Now, we've all heard of J.D. Rockefeller. Uh, These were the guys that built America, that made America. They owned steel mills and banking industries and and oil companies. Matter of fact, um, J.D. Rockefeller and Flagler together started Standard Oil. Now, that was the oil company of America that brought all the imports in, developed into one of the wealthiest organizations, companies in the history of the world. And this guy and J.D. Rockefeller were partners in developing it. They were co-owners of Standard Oil. And uh, one of the things that this guy had in common with the Fishers (laughs) is that he absolutely loved Florida. And he wasn't from Florida, he was from the Midwest, but he fell in love with Florida, but fell in love with Florida at a time when Florida was nothing but mosquitoes, alligators, and swamps. Remember, when you, some of you kids don't, doesn't make sense to you, when we'd make jokes, we'd say, um, I have some swamp land to sell you in Florida. You know, because you'd look at it and say, what's that all about? Florida's a great place. Well, Florida wasn't always a great place. Florida was like completely undeveloped, and at the time that Flagler fell in love with Florida, it was just a, a lot of it was just swamp, and it was really hard to get to. It's a long, skinny peninsula. There weren't decent roads, and you couldn't get there, and he was this wealthy guy who um, went to Florida, and he began to build some incredible resorts. Matter of fact, at one time, he owned the largest um, resorts, single resorts in the history of the world. He'd build one that would be the biggest in the world. Then he'd build a another one, that would be the biggest in the world. And um, he uh, found that he'd bring all his rich friends down, but his rich friends didn't like it because they couldn't get there easily. And so he had this incredible resort. The first one was the Ponce de Leon Resort. Anybody know what Ponce de Leon came to America? We just learned this when we were in, I mean, I relearned it when we were in um, on our cruise. Why he, what he came to Florida looking for? The Fountain of Youth. And, and Flagler's kind of had a similar idea. He thought maybe he could find youth in Florida. Because he was a guy who would accomplish a lot and he was aging and he didn't like the fact that his life was, the hourglass was tipped over and the sand was going through it and he was getting older. So he thought maybe he could do it. So the first resort he built was the Ponce de Leon Resort. And so um, he, his wealthy friends couldn't really get there. So what he did is he, he bought little tiny railways on the east coast of, of Florida and turned them all into one. And he built one huge railway all the way down, uh, back in the day of trains, all the way down the east coast of Florida. He also began to go to unknown places like Miami <laughs> and tre- dredged out the harbor so that, sh- so that ships could come in. And he took all this guy had just more money than, than anybody could imagine, so he could do whatever he wanted. And he began to de- develop um, Florida. And if you look at the history of Florida, they attribute the fact that, that Flagler is the chief person responsible for developing Florida into a vacation center. And so when I grew up, everybody wanted to go to Disney. 
You know, when I was 12, we took our, our, our pickup truck with the cab over camper, and my dad set out, and my mom, dad, and the three kids. We went on the ultimate vacation, which was driving down to Disney World. And that was because of Flagler. You know, we'd say Walt Disney, but no, it was because of Flagler. He had this vision that this place has 330 or something days of sunshine a year. It's beautiful. And he said, you know, I'm going to develop this place. Well, when he was 75 years old, um, he had developed the rail trains, he had developed harbors, he had developed huge resorts, and, you know, and Florida was becoming. But he really loved the Keys. He loved Key West. And he'd built a huge resort in Key West. And um, he decides at 75 years old that you can't easily get to Key West, Florida. Um, and so he decides, I'm going to build a train, a railway, from Miami all the way to Key West. And everybody, have you ever, anybody ever made that drive? I have. You know, you drive along. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not good with heights, and I'm not good with conf- being confined. And when you drive your car and all those long bridges over the water, you know, I'm like hyperventilating doing it half the time. Um, but he said he believed you could do that. He believed you could build a train track, a railway from Miami to, to, the, um, to, to Key West. But people around him, everybody, engineers, his friends, everybody in the nation was saying it can't be done. And the reason they said it couldn't be done is because to get there you had to cross 50 miles of Everglades and eventually when it was done, 106 miles of open ocean from island to island. And people said, you can't do that. You, know, you can't cross the Everglades with a train. You can't go over 106 miles of water you know, from island to island with a train. And um, they began to term it Flagler's Folly. Um, you know, we had another folly in America. Remember what the, fo- the big folly was? They called it... There was another one. We bought Alaska. Seward's Folly. Remember they laughed at, they laughed at the president and his, and his secretary of state who bought Alaska because they spent a ridiculous amount of money for it? You know how much they bought Alaska for from Russia? You know what we paid for Alaska. million. Two cents an acre. And they said, what a folly. It'll never turn into anything. Anybody kind of glad we got Alaska? (laughs) You know, um, the best investment in the history of America was buying Alaska. 7.2 million and we've taken oil and resources and it's just a a wonderful place. Well, people looked at that and said, this is the same kind of thing. Flagler is a fool. They began to say he's 75 and he's going crazy. They began to say he's been in the Florida sun too long and his head's getting, they would say this, his head's getting soft because he'd been in the sun too long. And it was, just, it was just folly to think of putting a train all the way down to Key West. Well, guess what? At 82 years old, seven years after the beginning, Flagler got to get on a train and go from Miami to Key West on a train. And now, the reality of the story is, um, it wasn't all that much later that a huge hurricane came through and wiped out the entire train track. Um, but it was open for years, and then they used his pilings, his bridge pilings that he had built. They said they built them so good that they simply did something. They built a road on it. And if you ever go down to the Keys now, there's sections, I don't know if all of it, where you drive on the new roads, and there's another old road next to it. Those bridge pilings are still there, the old road. That's what kept anybody going into the Keys open for years and years. They said he did all the work. They just changed it from a train into a road. And so Flagler's folly became Flagler's victory. That, that thing that everybody said, there was this obstacle in his path that he believed he should do it. He believed he was, he was supposed to do it. And everybody said, you can't do it. But he looked at it and said, I think I can. 
And when I listened to that story this last week on the, on the History Channel, um, it made me ask a question. It really did. I'd been dealing with some things in my spirit about Scripture, and it made me ask a question that I think is the question that, a question that a lot of you ask yourself also, or that you're facing right now, a question that we, we need as a church to ask. And it's this. What huge, apparently unconquerable obstacle is standing in your way today? What things are standing in your way today? What, what goal, what dream, or what challenge, what difficulty is standing in your way today and you look at it and say, it doesn't seem possible that I can overcome this obstacle? You know, what challenge are you facing that seems to be unwinnable? You know, are there things in your life that you can't seem to overcome? Addictions. I'm dealing with a man not from this church right now who is just admitted of having years, a pillar in the church world, years of having an addiction to some serious stuff that's causing all kinds of chaos. And I'm dealing with this man. Um, no one would have ever known. He sat in church and smiled. It happens all the time. There's addictions in our lives. How about marriage problems? We used to come in church. You know what was the greatest thing about our cruise? For the last 18, 17 and a half years, Suzanne and I have only had one time ever where we were alone. I remembered why I married her. I'm serious. I remembered, I got, she wasn't mom. She wasn't pastor. She wasn't secretary. She wasn't student. She wasn't all these things. She was just my wife. But you know what? A lot of you have forgotten that too. So what obstacle is standing in your way? Maybe it's, maybe it's marriage problems standing in your way. Maybe it's the, the obstacle of trying to keep your business going in this economy that is impossible. That, you know, since the Great Depression, it's never been this bad. And, and some of you don't have to convince you of that. And some of you are saying, how am I going to keep the doors open? And you're facing this obstacle that's it's impossible. It looks like it just can't be overcome. Or maybe it's the obstacle that, that so often, maybe all of us at some point deal with, the obstacle of forgiving someone who's really wounded you deeply. Somebody's really hurt you badly. And it looms out in front of you. And you know what? You can try to live your life by going around it, but it's always there. And it's always jumping up in your path. And these obstacles, they're there. What obstacle is in your way? And if you say to yourself today, well, you know what, Pastor Mark, I really don't have an obstacle in my way, I would just say, just wait. Because you know what I've come to conclude? You're going to say, Mark, you're the biggest pessimist on the planet. But this is what I've come to conclude. Life is just a series of obstacles and challenges that we just have some good days in between. That really, this world is fallen and corrupt and it's, it's not that great of a place. And there's a reason why God says heaven is, is where we're supposed to look, look to. Because heaven is this place with all the obstacles. But on this side of heaven, we have... We have obstacles. And you know, the Lord's been um, dealing with me a lot about lately about this. And He's been dealing with me about this, looking at obstacles, looking at how do I overcome the obstacles? How do I get better when I face an obstacle instead of getting worse? How do I advance? How can I believe that the obstacle God put in my path is actually His plan? It's His will to have the obstacle so that He can make me better and take me through and make me a better man of God, make you a better woman or man of God. And as, he's, as I've been dealing with this, he keeps taking me back to the same section of Scripture, the same story. And it's been for weeks now, and the staff is probably tired of listening to me, and my wife and the kids are probably tired of listening to me, because I keep coming back to the same story over and over and over. And it's the story of Gideon. I want you to grab your Bibles, if you have one, and turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 7. If you're new to the Bible, it's kind of near the front. 
And I'm going to tell you a story. You have a long time. If you don't know where it is, look in the front and find the page number and then turn to it because we're going we're to take a little while. I'm going to talk to you, just give you a summation of the story before we get to actually reading any details about it. Here's the story of Gideon if you're unfamiliar with it. And some of you just need a refresher course in it. If you remember, this is a time in Israel's history where Israel was in the promised land. Remember the story. Oftentimes we forget to put things in perspective. Israel was, had, been come, had come out of Egypt. We sang songs about it today. Come out, come through the wilderness, came into the promised land. Had God was blessing it. It was going wonderful. And guess what they began to do? They began to fall away from God. And we come to Israel at a time when they have rejected God. They're worshiping idols. And um, they've fallen away from Him. So God does something. It's one of the things that we... It's hard for us to admit that God would do. But it says completely... Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, And God had turned them over to the Midian, the Midianites. That they had rejected God. So God had turned them over to a nation who was judging them, who was conquering them, who was destroying them. And at the point we find Gideon, for seven years, the Midianites had been, had been attacking uh, the people of Israel. And we find um, that uh, what happened is that the, the Midianites would come in with their whole horde of people, and it says they're an innumerable amount of people, and they would wait till harvest time every year. And when harvest time came, they would grab all their animals and all their people, and they would invade Israel, and they'd basically be like, be like a swarm of locusts, and they would eat everything in their path. They would destroy everything that Israel had planted, everything that Israel had. And when we find Gideon in this story, do you remember where he was? He was out fighting the enemy, right? Where was he? He was hiding. He was hiding in the wine press, an area where they used to press out grapes to make wine. He was hiding. You remember what he was doing when he was there? He was hiding wheat. He was threshing out wheat. He had taken a bunch of wheat from the field, knowing the Midianites were going to come and destroy and attack them, and he would have nothing again. So he'd gathered all his, this bunch of wheat. He's down in the wine press. He's hiding, and he's threshing wheat out so he can hide it in the wine press so that when the Midianites come, him and his family have something to eat. And while he's down in that place, down in that place, not walking in faith in the slightest bit, and here's one of the wonderful things, he's not walking in faith, he's not expecting one ounce of victory. An angel of the Lord comes to him. And I really believe the angel of the Lord in this situation is a, is a pre-incarnate Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus beforehand because of the, the things that happen. I really believe that's what it is. But the angel of the Lord comes to him and says that he, of all people, had been chosen to deliver Israel. Now, if you're going to go choose somebody to deliver a nation, are you going to choose a guy who's hiding in a wine press, thrashing out wheat so he can just survive, maybe eke his way through? Don't we always pick the guy who's the champion, who seems to be filled with faith, seems to have all the skills? This guy didn't have the skill set. This guy's hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes and says, you know what, you've been chosen to deliver Israel. But you know what? You would think that'd be enough. An angel comes up to you. Who wants an angel to walk up to him and tell him what to do? I do. You know how many times I've said to the Lord, just, it'd be so much easier, God, just send a stinking angel right here, right now to tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. I, I've, I've, a thousand times I've said it in my life, God, it wouldn't be that difficult for you. Just send me an angel. Tell me what to do. But you know what? For me, he's never done it. Maybe for you he has, but he hasn't for me. An angel comes to Gideon, and Gideon's not convinced that he's supposed to do what, God, what this angel's telling him to do. So the first thing he says is, you know what, I'm not really convinced. Will you prove yourself? And he says, okay. And he goes, well, let me get an offering first. So he goes and he gets this offering for him, some meat and some, and some, some wine. And, and he's going to give him the offering. And he put the, the, the angel says, put it on a rock. And he puts it on a rock. And the angel takes his staff, his stick. 
and he touches it, and a fire comes up and consumes it all. Now, if that happened before me, I'd say, that's pretty convincing stuff. You know what? Touch a rock with a stick, all this stuff gets burned up. I would probably convince that this angel is really from God, and what he has to say, I should probably listen to. But if you read the whole story, you find out the angel keeps talking to him, God keeps communicating to him, and he's still not convinced. He's still filled with fear. And so shortly before he's going to do what God tells him to do, how he's going to fight, he says a second time, I'm really not convinced. He says, God, you know, bear with me for a second. Um, If this is really what you want me to do, I'm going to take a fleece. You know what a fleece is? It's a piece of sheepskin. Wool. You know? He said, I'm going to put it on the ground. And when I wake up in the morning, if there's only dew on the fleece, and the ground is all dry, then I'll really believe that you told me to do this. Gets up in the morning, goes out there, picks up the fleece, and says he rings it out, all this water comes out of the fleece, and the ground's dry. He goes, uh, God, just bear with me for a minute. If you're really telling me to do this, God, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I want the ground to be wet. See, you can, he, he just like you and me, he thinks, he goes, well, maybe I didn't understand how fleece works. Maybe the dew point was just right that the dew only settled on the fleece last night. So God, tomorrow, let's do it different. So I want the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. He wakes up in the morning and the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. And uh, he says, well, you know, I, I, I think, I think I'm, I'm all right with this. So he begins to gather the troops. He seems to be convinced, so he, he assembles the troops. Now remember, it's an innumerable army. And when he calls the troops of Israel together, a big group comes, but not very many compared to what the enemy is. 32,000 men come together. Come together. And God looks at the 32,000 and he says the craziest thing ever in history of warfare. You got too many people. You're saying, okay, for every one of us, there's a hundred of them or there's ten of them or there's twenty of them. We ain't got too many, God? And he goes, you've got too many. So he says this, to anybody who is afraid, you can go home. I would be on the first bus. Are you afraid? You're facing an army that has conquered you for seven years. They've got an innumerable amount of people. You have, you have 32,000. You know you can't win. If you're afraid, go home. I'd be like, where's the bus? You know, 22,000 in one instant, leave. Then God looks at him and says, Gideon, got 10,000. 10,000, still too much. Still too many. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do, Gideon. Take them all down and give them a drink. And he, pay attention to how they drink. Because what's going to happen is um, uh, almost all of them are going to kneel down on the ground. They're going to put their face to the water. They're going to drink. Remember, they didn't go out to the refrigerator and take a, a, a can of Pepsi out. They went to the lake and started drinking or a river. But 300 of them did something a little different. 300 of them, instead of kneeling down and putting their face to the water, simply took their hand, up, their hand in the water, pulled it up and drank like this. And put their hand to their mouth. And they began to drink. And God said, okay, those 300, those are the ones I want you to use. I want you to take those 300. And so he's got the 300 people. He's had these incredible um, ways that God has proven that he's in it. And Gideon's still afraid. He goes, "Uh, I'm not so convinced I want to do this, God. And God says, okay, one more time, I'll prove to you I'm in this. He says, take your servant and go sneak down into the Midianite camp. And he sneaks down the hill into the Midianite camp. He says, listen outside the tent. And they come to a tent and they hear some of their enemies talking. And the one enemy says to the other enemy, I had a dream last night. That's a crazy dream. He said, I had a dream that a loaf of barley rolled down the hill. And it flattened our tent. 
And the other guy goes, I know, it's a prophecy from the Lord. This is the interpretation. Gideon is going to destroy us. Now what does a loaf of barley rolling down the hill have to do with Gideon? But God gives him the interpretation and says, Gideon is going to, to, to destroy us. And so Gideon understands the interpretation. Okay, God's really in this thing. So the next day the battle comes. The next day he says this. You take 300 of your 300 men, break them into three groups of 100. You're going to go down, you're going to surround this huge camp. And at the right time, you're going to take, all you're going to take, you're not going to take any swords with you. You're going to take trumpets, you're going to take torches, and you're going to take pitchers for carrying water, pitchers. You're going to put the lit torch inside the, inside the pitcher, and you're going to take your trumpets, and at the right time, you're, all at the same time, you're going to smash the pitchers, expose the, expose the torches, and blow the trumpets, and yell, the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. And you know what happened when they did that? They all smashed the pitchers, held up their torches, blew their trumpets, and, um, and the enemy's army began to kill each other. They all got confused, began to slaughter each other with their swords, and they took off and they fled. Now friends, that's a bizarre story. That's a crazy way to win a battle that was completely unwinnable. And the thing I want us to consider today is what enabled Gideon to overcome what appeared to be an unbeatable obstacle. What, what things from this story do we see that allowed Gideon to go through this process where he faced something that he had been unable to win in the past? Remember, seven years of defeat. Seven years. Some of you have been struggling with things for seven years and 17 years and 27 years. And it's been, it's been a, like a, a chain around your ankle. And it's keeping you from going forward. What things did he have in his situation that we can learn from the story that can help us face our Midianite army? Face that thing in us that, that absolutely is, uh, it outnumbers us. It's bigger than us. It's an, inwin- an unwinnable war. You know, and, and even if we try to fight the war, everybody says, ah, it's Larson's folly. Can't be done. You can't win that war. You can't, you can't accomplish it, you know. It's Josh's folly or Suzanne's folly or, you know, whomever. It's Dave's folly. Can't be done. Well, I see three things from this story that I think we need to grab onto. As we're going to face, right now we're facing an obstacle, or in in a year or a week or a month we're going to face an obstacle. Three things from this story that I think we need to grab onto that we can apply to our lives. The first one is this. The first thing that Gideon did to overcome it is that Gideon had a word from God about the situation. The first thing, look at, look at chapter 6, verse 36. And it says it all over through this whole thing. But this is just so clear right here. This is right before the sign of the fleece. He says, Then Gideon said of, to God, If you will deliver, deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. He's going to go on and say do the fleece. But look what he said. He said, God, if you will do to me through me what you have spoken. God told Gideon, in no uncertain terms, that he was going to use him to deliver Israel. Gideon did not question for a moment the plan of God in the situation. He knew that God had clearly communicated to him that it was his will to use him to do this task. Now why is that so important? Why is it so important to say, I need to have a word from God about my situation? Because it gave Gideon something to hold on to when the battle seemed impossible to win. It gave him the strength when he wanted to quit and just say, this doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go back to the wine press. And friends, you know what? Here's the thing you need to think about yourself today. 
What does God have to say about your situation? Whatever that obstacle is, what is God saying about the situation? Now, most likely, He isn't going to tell you about it by sending you an angel. I said earlier, it would be really nice. It would make life a whole lot simpler. If He'd just send an angel and tell me what the deal is with the situation. But you know what? He generally does not send us angels. But I'll tell you something. He has spoken to your situation. Because He's given us something more consistent than relying on an angel. He's already spoken to your situation through His Word. You know what I've learned over life? Life's not that difficult about my situations usually. If I just get down to serious business and I say, God, what's your word I have to say about the situation? You want to know what God's Word has to say about your marriage? Should I keep working? Should I keep fighting? Should I keep trying to make it work? You know what God's Word says? He says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You want to know God's word on your marriages? If it's worth still fighting for, God's word is, my plan is that it would stay together. It's worth fighting for. What's God say about his word about your addiction? That thing that maybe nobody else knows about. But that, that you have that secret little place in your life and, you're, and that, that thing's got a hold on you instead of you having control over it. You know what God's word has to say? Whom Christ has set free is free indeed. God's given us a word about it. He's told us he doesn't want us as his children to have anything that controls us. Whom the Christ has set free is free indeed. You know what? What does God have to say about this church? About Portview reaching this community for Christ? What's he have to say about it in a time of transition? What does he have to say about it? You know what he has to say? He's really clear in his word. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You want to know God's word for this church? That's God's word for this church. We don't have to question what God's word is for this church. He's given us an angel in essence. He said his word is that my church will be filled with miracles, my church will be filled with salvation, my church will be filled with power as my people will go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We have his word on a situation. And friends, you need to ask yourself when you're facing that that thing that everybody's saying is folly. It's saying you can't beat it. It's held you down. It's beat you up. You can't seem to overcome it. You need to ask yourself, what's God's word on my situation? And I'll, I'll tell you this. That's all that really matters. What's God have to say about it? You know what you face in the world all the time? Well, I think. And so and so said you know what? Last night we were driving, and I don't mean me to embarrass Josh, but I was just surprised. We were driving in a car, and we were talking about Scripture, and Josh said his favorite book of the Bible is Job. And I'm like, wow! You know, I, I, when I was 17, I didn't know there was a book of Job. Um, and I didn't. I wasn't saved. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that because we were talking about Job's counselors, who all these well, well-intentioned people said, well, I think this, or Job, your problem is that. And guess what? Every single one of them was wrong. God was in the God was in the storm. God was in the turmoil. And that's just what Josh was saying. He said, you know what? God was in the midst of it. And all the counselors around were all, they all got it wrong. And they were all good people who knew the book. They knew the word. And guess what, friends? You know what? It doesn't matter what somebody else says about it. What's God have to say about it? So the first thing to overcome that obstacle is, number one, you need to know what God has to say about your situation and stand on that. The second thing is this, that Gideon had. Second thing to overcome that obstacle is, is Gideon had a unified team. 
Turn to chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 with me. Look what Gideon had. I, God, the whole reason I've been drawn to this text over the last couple of weeks is because God's been dealing with me on this exact part of the story. That God had a unified team. And I've got to tell you something. I've preached on this text before, and I've, I think I've preached it wrong. Maybe not, maybe not sinfully wrong, but I think I missed the point. This whole thing is about unity. It's all it's about. Look at chapter, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, um, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And camp of Midian was on the north side to them by the, the hill of Moriah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, By my own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return depart from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he whom I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone whom I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with the tongue as a dog laps as well as everyone who kneels and drinks. Now the number of those who putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men but all, all the rest of the people kneeled and drink and the Lord said to Gideon I will deliver you with 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands so let all the other people go each man to his home look at this crazy story he starts with 32,000 which was already too few he went to 10,000 he ends up with 300 and the question is why? Why did God whittle it down to 300? He said, you know, obviously it's because there was too many to take credit, but let's think about that for a second. Even 32,000 couldn't really win the war. They hadn't won it in seven years. So God would, why? Why does he, why does he thin the ranks? He thinned the ranks to get to the unified core. That's what he did. He thinned the ranks to get to the unified core. He took 300 people who all did the same thing the same way. Doesn't mean they look the same. Doesn't mean they like the same thing for supper. What it means is that at that time they were all doing the same thing the same way. They simply drank water the same way. They were in unity. And friends, you need to understand something about how God works. God can work miracles through unity. The thing that Jesus prayed for more than anything else for his church. Read the prayers of Christ. He prayed for one thing. He didn't pray even for us to be filled with the Spirit. He prayed for us to be filled with unity. The number one thing God prayed for his church wasn't that we'd reach the world. It was that we'd be unified. Because he understood if we were unified, the rest would all come. We'd reach the world. We'd be filled with the Spirit. He prayed and he sought for unity. And that is what God worked for today. You know, um, how do you think Gideon felt? when God began to thin that troop to 300. When God began to whittle that thing down from 32,000 and to 10,000 and to 300, how do you think Gideon felt at that moment in his life? Because remember, his life was on the line. We read this as a story. You know, we sit down and we read it. Oh, this happened. You know, this is real life. This guy is facing an innumerable army who have swords and they've come to kill you. His neck is in a noose. You know, they're going to chop his head off. How do you think he felt? You know how I think he felt when God began to whittle him to having a unified core? I think he was scared to death. I think that's why over and over and over he said, God, are you sure? I think he was scared to death. I also think he was confused. 
You know why he was scared? Because I think he said this, well, certainly they're going to slaughter us now. We've been thinned down and now we can't win. Maybe there was a slight chance before because if we all rallied and thought really good, maybe somehow we could win. But right now, it is impossible. We cannot win. So I think he was scared, but I also think he was incredibly confused. Because you know why I think he was confused? And some of you have been walking in this confusion right now. Because he looked at the, at the army that was being thinned down. And he saw who was walking away. And he said, and he watched this person walk away, and he said, oh, God, don't you understand? That's Bill. Bill's our best archer, God. Bill can hit the apple off, the, off somebody's head at 100 paces. We're going to war. I want Bill on my side. But Bill kneeled down and he began to drink. And God said, I don't want him around. He said, but, but, but God, you don't understand. We need Bill. And God said, no, you don't. And then he looked over on this side and I think he's confused because he looks and there's the, there's the, there's the Smith clan. And for years, the Smith clan have been known as the tough ones. They're the ones you don't let your kids play with. You know? They're the ones that, you know, well, we'll play with those kids. They're too rough and tumble. And they begin to walk away because, you know what? They, they were drinking differently. And they begin to walk away. And I think Gideon says to God, God, I, I think you made a mistake here. We can't win without the Smiths. God, it's impossible. We can't win. You're, you're not making any sense here, God. We can't win, and, and he's confused. And I think he also did this when it was all whittled down to 300. He said, Lord, um, something's not making sense here. I know these 300. I know who you've chosen, God. And just between you and me, we're dead. Um, God, it's not possible. I know these people. You sent the best away, God. You sent the ones I've always relied on away, God. We can't win. But God says, Gideon, trust me. Gideon, trust me. I want a unified team, all working together, all listening to my directions, all going in the same way with the same goal. Friends, unity wins the battle. Scripture says very clearly, a three-strand cord is not easily broken. Unity wins the battle. And when you are facing your obstacle, whatever that obstacle is, I challenge you, surround yourself with those who have the same goals. You know what, if you're facing an addiction, you know who you need to surround yourself with? Other people who have overcome. You're facing a challenge in a certain area of your life, an addiction. It's your, it's your unwinnable, unbeatable obstacle. You need to surround yourself with other people who have overcome that obstacle. You need to get around people who have won the same fight. You know what, if marriage is a problem, if that's your obstacle, you need to surround yourself with people who have solid marriages. And I'll tell you this, do not spend your time. You may have to give up some friends to win the war. Do not spend time with those who tear at your marriage's foundation. Do not spend time with people who are in bad marriages themselves and are always criticizing their spouse or your spouse. You know what I've witnessed over the years that has just, just saddened me so much? I've seen people who had pretty good marriage relationships. And one or the other, the husband or the wife, begins to hook up with this person who's got a really bad marriage. And that bad marriage person begins to always criticize marriage. And always talk about how rotten it is. And I'll talk about how bad all husbands are, how bad all wives are. And begin to criticize and criticize. And pretty soon this person begins to drift away from their marriage and saying, well, you know what, maybe this person's right. Friend, disunity destroys things. Jesus said a house divided cannot stand. 
And if you want to beat your, you want to beat your, your un, apparently unwinnable um, war, you need to be surrounded by people who have the same heart. You need to be surrounded by people who have the same victories and the same goals in mind. And so you need to have a unified team. You need to surround yourself with people who will pray with you. People who will, who, will, who will cry with you. People who say, we're in this battle together with you. Not people who are saying, yeah, but you know, so and so. Or yeah, you know, I know your marriage, you want your marriage to survive, but you know, your husband, I don't like him from the day you met him. You don't need that. You don't need that at that time. Jesus started, God started with 32,000 and said, I don't need that. I just need, a, I just need a core. I just need a core of people who will do the same thing the same way and I can take that core and I can beat any army that's on the face of the earth. God can win it, destroy anything in your life if you have a unified core. So that's the second thing we learned from Gideon. Let's look at this, the, last, the very last one. And it's this. Get a word from God. Have a unified team. And number three, you need to choose faith over fear. You need to choose faith over fear. Gideon was afraid. And guess what, friends? That's okay because so would you have been afraid. Because I would have been afraid too. Put yourself in their shoes. Gideon was afraid and it was normal to be afraid. But there came a time when he made a decision to put his fear aside and follow God's leading. Look at verse starting in verse 36, chapter 7. Actually, chapter 6. That would help. There is no 36 in chapter 7. It's the story of the fleece. What we see here is fear. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so, when he arose early the next morning and squeezed out the fleece, he drained dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me ask, please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it be dry now only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was, only, it was dry only on the fleece, and the dew was only on the ground. And then chapter 7, verse 1, it said, Then Gideon, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, Then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring. There was a time when he said, Then Gideon. He was afraid. He asked God. God confirmed it. And there was a point in time when he made a decision to move forward. Friends, that's faith. There's a point in time you make a decision to move forward. He didn't anymore talk about the the 32,000. He didn't talk about it anymore. He said, Okay, God, it's time to move ahead. He trusted and he proceeded even though he didn't know the outcome. Friend, that is faith. That's faith. When you say, you know what, God, I'm making a decision today to choose faith over fear. And friends, look at the victory that they had. Friends, in your life, there's a day where you have to choose faith over fear. When you face your obstacle, I have found that the most common cause of failure is this. It's the fear of failure. The most common cause of failure in overcoming your obstacle is the fear of failure. And you say this to yourself, what if I fail again? I'm not even going to try. 
I've tried to quit smoking a hundred times. I've tried to overcome that addiction a hundred times. I've tried to make my marriage work a hundred times. I've tried this or that a hundred times. And you say, why should I even try again? Because all that's going to happen is I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail and I'm afraid to fail again. Friend, that's why Gideon starts this story hiding in the wine press. He didn't plan on fighting. He didn't plan on winning. He planned on failing. That's what Gideon planned to do in that circumstance. He planned to fail. But I want to tell you something. Your biggest victories will come when you look at the fear of failure right in the eye and you say, you're not going to stop me. I'm moving forward with God. Fear is not going to stop me. I'm going to advance with the Lord. The Lord gave me His Word. This is His plan. I've got a team around me and I am going to move forward. Friends, faith, trust in God is essential to victory. It's not faith based on blind faith, just saying faith and faith. It is faith in a loving Heavenly Father who wants the absolute best for you and the absolute best for me and He's going to lead you to victory. But you need to to, to step out in faith and follow His lead. There's a day where you have to say, no more will the fear of failure stop me. You know, He can restore your marriage. He can heal you. He can reach your lost children. He can break your addiction. Now believe me, stepping out in faith isn't easy. Can you imagine what the naysayers were saying to Gideon in the 300 as they began to step out in faith and they said, we got 300, we're going to go to battle. Can you imagine what the people around them were saying? They're saying, you are going to be slaughtered. They're saying, you are a bunch of fools. Hide in the wine press with us and save yourself. And I'm sure they heard this one for, 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 for sure. They said, that's the dumbest battle plan I've ever heard in my entire life, Gideon. You are going to go face a bunch of guys with swords and you're taking nothing but trumpets and torches and pitchers. You're a fool. Get in here and hide with us. Well, friends, I found something. Often God's path to victory looks a lot different than our own path does, than what we think is right. Generally, we want to take things into our own hands and do it our way. But God wants us to place things in His hands and simply trust and obey. That's what Gideon did. That's what the 300 did. The plan looked crazy. But he trusted and he obeyed and he overcame a seemingly unbeatable obstacle in his way. And friends, when you step out in faith, people may call it folly. Gideon's folly. Flagler's folly. But God saw it as the key to gaining the victory. They stepped out in faith. So friends, we need to choose faith over fear. How did he win? He heard God's voice. He heard his plan. He gathered a team around him. We're all going to do the same thing the same way. And he said, in faith and not fear, we're going to move ahead. And when they did that, the victory was awesome. They surrounded the army. It's just hilarious. They surrounded the army with nothing but torches and pitchers and trumpets. And they smashed the pitchers. They raised up the... They raised up the, the, the um, Torches, thank you. <laughs> they blew the trumpets. And the army started killing each other. But this is, and the army, the whole camp fled. The whole camp took off running away from 300 guys who didn't even have a sword between them or a knife. And they all ran and they got the victory. And friends, you need to ask yourself today what seems impossible to you? I want you to know something that with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. 
And He wants to prove that to you and me and this church today. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's stand together today.